We probably should have known better. We were warned. People told us that if you have a a little dog, they have inferiority complexes. And they're always trying to prove that they're in charge. After almost 14 years, I can testify to that truth. Little dogs do want to be in charge. And we have had this continual struggle of who's going to run things. I'll leave it up to you who you think wins the, won the battle and who wins the battle most of the time. But I was thinking about that just recently because last week, Cindy was up in Rochester with her mom and dad at the hospital for a few days. And so I was home with our dog. And I, I, as, supper, as supper time came, I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take charge here. We've been having some trouble with him. He'd gotten sick a while back, and he couldn't eat some of his dog food. And so we had given him some human food, and he decided he really liked that human food, and he didn't want to go back to his dog food. So we were having this struggle about that. And I decided... This is the time we're going to put an end to this battle. I'm going to win this thing. So I put his food out for him, and I went in the other room, and all of a sudden I heard this, this loud banging, crashing noises, and I'm hearing his, his little collar with the stuff on it clanging all over the place. And I walked back into the kitchen, and he had strewn his food all over the floor. I mean, it was everywhere. And he's standing there looking at me, and, you know, you never know what quite is going through these dogs' minds, but you can guess. Sometimes you don't want to know, but you can guess. And he's looking at me like, you really want to do this? All right, I can do this all day. Come on, give me your best shot. Let's go. And I decided very quickly that I probably wasn't going to win that battle with him, not right then. What interests me about that is that it's not just 10-pound canines that struggle with control. So do you and I. We struggle with control too. We struggle with control in our relationships. We struggle about control in our work. We struggle about control with God. It is the, one of the marks of our human nature. That in our relationship with God, we want to be in control. And it, hasn't, it didn't start with us. We aren't the first people to wrestle with this. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. And one of the places where we see this struggle for control is in this passage from Luke's gospel that we've just read. Here's Jesus teaching in the temple. It's, the, it's this last week of his life. And he is telling people the good news. He, he is sharing with them who God is. He's done healings and miracles. He has tried to help them understand the nature of God in a culture and in a religious environment that has warped the nature of God. I imagine Jesus may be saying to them what he says to the people that Luke records in the fourth chapter of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth, that the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and, and, and 
and good things for the, for the poor and the oppressed and, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to tell the good news, to bring about a, a clear, pure image of who God is. And the people are eating it up. And in the midst of this teaching about the goodness of God and the kingdom, in walk the religious leaders. And, and they completely miss everything Jesus is saying. And they go to him and say, who gave you the authority to do this? Who put you in charge? Who said you get to control this situation? It's fascinating, isn't it, that here's Jesus talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the nature of God. He's trying to help people understand who God is, and they completely miss it because all they can think about is control, power. I suspect that in the back of their minds, they're thinking, or maybe even in the front of their minds, what's the, what's, what's the agenda that Jesus has here? Because everyone has an agenda. No one does things just because you like people. No, no one does these things just because you want to paint a good image of God. There's always a hidden agenda because that's how they live their lives. Everything they do is about a hidden agenda. Everything's about power. Everything's about control. And obviously that must be the case with Jesus too. And in response, Jesus gives them what seems to me a very un-Jesus-like answer. You know how we get Jesus, we put him in boxes, and we think, this is the Jesus that we like. This is the Jesus we have shaped, usually in our image. And we like the Jesus who, who does what we want him to do and says the things we want him to say. This is the Jesus picture that we have. And then we read the scriptures And we find this box we've created shattered. And here Jesus does it again. I I would expect him to say, well, let's talk about that. But instead, he sort of gets back up in their faces and says, look, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. That sounds like something we would say. Maybe not something Jesus would say. And he says, how about it? John the Baptist, was he sent from God or did he just make all this stuff up on his own? And the the religious leaders say, just a minute. And they walk over and they do a little huddle and they're saying, all right, I don't know what to do here. If we say he's from God, then he's going to ask us, why didn't you believe him? If we say he made it all up himself, the people are going to stone us because they think John was the greatest thing in the world. And of course, they understand too that if they acknowledge that John is from God, then they have to acknowledge that Jesus is from God because they are intimately connected. You can't have one without the other. In fact, the reason they reject Jesus is because they rejected John and vice versa. And so they come back and say, we don't know. And Jesus says, fine. You don't want to answer my question? I'm not going to answer your question. And sometimes wisdom says people don't really want the answer. They don't really want to know truth. They just want to make sure that we know they're right and we're wrong. They just want to say something to say, gotcha. And Jesus isn't going to play their games. So he says, fine. But he still doesn't, he doesn't stop there. He turns to the people and says, let me tell you a story. And he tells them this, this story about 
an owner of a vineyard and the tenants and servants coming to try to collect what the owner is deserved and they keep throwing them out and finally sends the son and they kill him. And you scratch your head and you say, what? What would make them think that, that killing the son would cause the owner to say, well, I guess that's it. I'll have to give that one up. Don't they know that would incite him more than anything? They're so captured by their greed and their desire for power and control that they can't even think straight. And you see that in people throughout the scriptures. People who are so enamored with power and control and and the things of this world that they don't think straight. And they do crazy things. And you think, why would they do that? And then, of course, we do a little self-examination and we say, yeah, okay, now I understand. Because we all can get caught up in that. Isn't it fascinating that they get to the end of this and they're upset because Jesus tells this parable that they know is about them. But they are only concerned about the fact that he tells a parable that puts them in a bad light, not the fact that he's actually putting his finger on something that they need to change. And so the story that ends with they kill the son leads to the the religious leaders going out to plot to kill the son. And they don't even see it. The end of the story really shocks the people. That the owner of the vineyard, and I think they all understand that the owner of the vineyard represents God, and the owner of the vineyard comes and says, okay, that's it. We're we're getting rid of these people, these tenants, we're killing them, and we'll find some other people to do this. Now I think on one hand, and he goes back to the vineyard image that we found in Isaiah, on the one hand... Jesus is saying, if you as Jews, my people, are going to reject my son, I'll find some other people who will accept him. And they say, may it never be, God forbid. But I also think there is just this sense of, would God really do that? Would God, as the owner of the vineyard, really do that to people who reject him? And Jesus says, yes. Why else would, would this stuff about the cornerstone be spoken in Scripture? And you look at the cross and this, this means of, of grace and mercy and redemption and salvation and love and all the things that we embrace, if rejected, becomes the means of judgment and condemnation. And we don't like to think of it that way. We don't like to think of of the reality of the wrath of God and the judgment of God, but the truth is there are consequences to the decisions we make about God. And Jesus is trying to make that clear to both the religious leaders and all the people gathered there that rejecting him has consequences. If all that we can think about is control, if our passion in life is controlling life, we are not moving toward the cross, we're moving away from the cross. Because the cross is about coming and surrendering and giving up control. 
The call of the cross is to surrender. Jesus says, we take up our crosses, we deny ourselves, we follow him. And the cross is the place of the ultimate surrender of Christ. And if Christ is, accomplishes God's purposes in the world through the cross, then what would make us think that God would say and would expect anything less of people who are followers of Christ who goes to the cross? That's hard for us. We like control. It's hard to give up control. It's hard to let go. And sometimes we don't even realize we're doing it. But more often than not, the struggles in our lives are rooted in our desire to control. To control our relationship with people, to control our relationship with God. The call of the cross is to surrender it. To give up our control. What we don't realize is that giving up control that feels like loss, feels like losing, is the only way to truly win. Only when we give up control can the Spirit truly fill us. And the truly, the Spirit control us. And only as the Spirit is in us can we know all that God desires for us to be. All that we were created to be. Only through the Spirit can we have life and joy and peace and all that God wants for us. But as we keep hanging on and controlling, we are in essence shoving away the Spirit. And walking away from the cross. So what, what do we do to give up control? What, what might that look like? Well, I think for one thing, we, we live with a spirit of willingness to learn from unexpected people. You know, we, we have our expectations about the ways in which God can speak into our lives. And often, those are pretty narrow. We, we put people into classifications sometimes without even realizing it. And, and we, we start thinking, these are people that God might speak to me, through, through whom God might speak to me, but I don't see any way God could speak to me through them. And I'm telling you, giving up control is being willing to let these people be channels of God to speak into our lives. Whatever, however we classify one another, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, young, old, giving one of the ways in which we give up control is to say, God, through whomever you want to speak, speak into my life. There are people that you want to bring to me who have a word from, from you for me. There are people whose lives are, are, are a challenge to me 
And, and they're closer to you than I am, and it's hard to admit that, but I need to learn from them. Years ago when the um, railroads were big in this country at the beginning of the 20th century, they built Grand Central Station in New York, and there were the porters there wore red caps, and so they called them red caps. And uh, their job was to carry luggage for people on and off the trains, people going all over the country, people arriving from other countries. And, and the porters, they didn't make very much money. They weren't they were kind of you know, menial work. They were looked down on. And one of the porters, Ralston Young, particularly hated his job. He hated being a red cap. And, and he would, in fact, if people would ask him what he did, he would tell them that he worked in leather. Because they said it was close he could get to not lying totally and yet not telling them that the leather he worked in were the bags that he carried for other people. And then he met Christ. And his life was totally changed. And, and he became an influence and a witness for Christ at Grand Central Station. And as people, you'd see people who looked downcast and he would talk to them about their life and, and they would confide in him and he said, can I pray for you? And they would, most of the people would love that. And, and he became, built a reputation. They called him uh, the red cap preacher. And, and, and he would pray with people all the time. And in fact, people would come to him and say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you pray for this person in my life, family member, friend? And, and pretty soon some of them said, we ought to have a little gathering of prayer. And so they found an, an empty car on one of the side tracks and they fixed it up a little bit and they invited him to come and to get together when they could and he would pray over these people. And then some businessmen got together and said, let's rent some office space in Manhattan so that Ralston can come and we can have some organized prayer gatherings and he can pray for us and he can teach us about prayer and teach us about Christ. And amazing things happened because of his willingness to be used for Christ. But you know what makes me even more, amazes me even more, is that there were businessmen who said, this guy who carries bags down at the train station has something to teach us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. No wonder miraculous things happened and lives were changed. A sense of, of openness about the unexpected. And I think we also need to embrace the uncomfortable. You know, there is uncomfortable in, the, in life that's sin and, and that we obviously don't embrace. But there are lots of experiences that happen in life that are outside of what we would consider make us feel comfortable. And I'm convinced that those are the places where God tends to speak to us most effectively. And if we're going to give up control of our lives, there needs to be a willingness for God to speak into our lives through circumstances and situations that are uncomfortable for us. You know, we, maybe it has to do with things in the church that the way we do worship or the, or the way that we, we interact with each other or you know, maybe it's a theological system that we might be a little bit uncomfortable with. And yet there are things that people have to teach us. Some of you may know 
Donald Miller, uh, author, he's written Blue Like Jazz, other books, and he, he writes in a way that challenges the church, some traditional ways of thinking. He asks a lot of good questions. And I, and I, I like a lot of the things he says. It's convicting, but th- there's a need for that. But recently he wrote in a, in a blog that he, he just doesn't like going to church. See, that's, that's just not the way I experience God. It's not the way I learn. So if you ask me, do I go to church? He said, really, not very much. It's just not the way I learn. And when I read that, I thought, I think he's missing something here. Quite frankly, what does that have to do with anything? Maybe it's the places where we say, that's not the way I learn, where God is going to speak into our lives most effectively. And I'm not picking on him because, quite frankly, we all wrestle with that. You know, we come to church, there are things we like and we don't like. There's things that we do that make us comfortable and uncomfortable. We all experience that. It's hard for me when we go on vacation and we go to other churches. Quite frankly, too much of the time I spend judging what they do or what they don't do. And I'm thinking, why are they doing that? What is that about? Are you kidding me? Come on. And I keep thinking, oh, I wish we were back home. And I can't tell you, you know, the Lord has smacked me upside the head and said, what are you doing? I had things that I needed to say to you in that worship service. Who cares if you uh, liked it or didn't like it or it made you comfortable or uncomfortable? I want to speak to you through that. And instead of a spirit of judgment, I need a spirit of openness. And we all wrestle with that. But if we're going to be open to God, if we're going to let go of control, it will almost assuredly involve letting God move us to places that make us feel uncomfortable. Because in the uncomfortable places, we either run from him or we trust him. See, giving up what we want, giving up control, is either going to, it's either going to bring fear to us or it's going to inspire trust in us. And if we understand God, as the scriptures tell us, we don't have any reason to fear. Because we're trusting the God who loves us, who created us, who went to the cross for us. And what feels like losing is winning. But it's hard. Craig Barnes says that you know, there are those times in life where it, everything is exactly where we want it to be. You know, family's in good shape, our job is in good shape, our relationships are in good shape, our health, everything is exactly where we want it to be. And we just want to yell out, okay, nobody move. Just, just stop. Everybody just stay right there. And he says, if that's what we're thinking, we better take a picture. Because more than likely, God is going to call us to another phase, another step of abandonment. Of taking our hands off of this life that we want to control. And he's going to move us in spirit in places and in ways that we really wish he wouldn't. 
until we've been through a little bit and we see what moving to the next place does for our relationship with him and our journey with him. It's hard letting go. We like being in control. But if we are going to be the people God created us to be, if we are going to experience joy and peace and the life that God created us to live, then we will need to let go, to trust him. Because he doesn't want us to settle for where we are. He wants us to live in the so much more that he has designed for every one of us. Gracious Father, you know our struggle with control. We justify it, we excuse it. Lord, help us. Help us to trust you enough to let go. Father, this morning there may well be one particular point in our life that you put your finger on and said to us, I want you to give me that. And your grace, give us the strength to open our hands and to let go and to trust you. the grace of Christ, we pray. Amen.